0: Uh, Dr. Hannah used to tell us well i I asked him one time I said, "Hey, how are you doing and this is his response he says he thought he 's very thoughtful and he goes, "You know pretty good. The Lord has been pleased to give me a ministry, and over the years, I have lived off those words because he didn 't say yeah jeff i 've taken a ministry or yeah jeff i've blazed a ministry now it was Jeff, you know The Lord's been pleased to give me a ministry. Give me. (laughs) And um, this is the Lord giving a ministry. Uh, You can't can't pass that stuff up. So it's really cool. Okay, so um, I'm actually, we're going to go, I'm going to start preaching now because we're going to have an ordination service right after uh, this sermon. So here's the deal. I probably got maybe two more sermons in the tank for that you know, the stories from the dark series. Probably next week we'll do Rahab, we'll do Gideon and Daniel, um, and maybe we'll do all of them. So maybe three, three, two to three more sermons there. This is gonna be a one-off because of the special day of ordination for Colin. So we're gonna talk a little bit about leadership. That's what the sermon's gonna be about. And so the question before us this morning is: what makes a great leader? What makes a great leader? So in 1940, all of Europe was on the verge of collapse. Europe was about ready to be speaking German. Everywhere, the French, everywhere was going to be speaking German. Uh, Hitler was unstoppable. Those that lived during those times probably asked, so who can stop him? I mean, who can stop him? So on June 4th, 1940, Germany invades France. Winston Churchill is now only one month into his job. Can you imagine this? One month into being the prime minister. This is what he's facing. And so he stands before parliament and he addresses a fearful nation. These words that he is about to say would be the most significant, the most important speech in modern history. But they become the second most to the one we're going to look at even after this. So here's what he says. He says, even though large tracts of Europe and many of old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of the Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France and we shall fight on the seas and the oceans and we shall fight with a growing confidence and a growing strength in the air. We shall fight on our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields, and we shall fight in the streets, and we shall fight in the hills, and we will never surrender. Phenomenal speech. Could have been the most famous speech in modern history, except that one happened a year later, in the most dire moments, the most dire place for England. Now England, we've been around what? 250 years, you know, maybe. I visited London like three, four years ago, and I looked at a church, and it was founded in 1000 AD. So when you're talking about the most dire moment in a country's history, you're talking about a big deal when you're talking about England, or you're talking about Great Britain. Uh, Every living room in England is tuned in on the radio. Bombs are dropping as the speech is going on. And this becomes the most famous speech in modern history. And it's Winston Churchill again. And he says to all his people, never give in. Never, 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 never. And a whole country said, we will never give in. That's a great leader. What makes a great leader? One of my favorite leaders of all time is a guy named Ernest Shackleton in 1914. He came up with this crazy idea. He says, you know what? I want to go to Antarctica. And I not only want to go there, because only the first people to ever go there happened in 1912. This is two years later. They were three people, a legendary explorer by the name of Robert E. Scott. They got there. They never made it back. So not only is he saying, hey, I want to go there, but I want to walk, be the first one to cross Antarctica on foot from east to west. Can you imagine? That's the kind of guy he was. He needed a crew of 27, and so he puts this ad in the newspaper. He says, quote, men wanted for harsh journey, small wagers, bitter cold, safe return, doubtful. 5,000 men responded to that ad. I think we just under under-challenge men, under-challenged women, under-challenged people today. His leadership is the stuff of legend. One quote goes like this. For scientific leadership, give me Scott, that guy that got down there. For swift and efficient travel, give me a Munsden, another world-famous traveler. But when you are in a hopeless situation, <laughs> when there seems no way out, get on your knees and pray for Shackleton. Shackleton was a great leader. What makes a great leader? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, we're going to look at three passages, one in John. And then I'm just going to read up here. I can't get to it on this. All right, so here we go. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. Then later in 3, he says, these are some of his last words, he must increase, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Now let's go to another great man. Let's go to the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Now let's go to Galatians. He says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world for neither circumcision counts for anything Nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would uh, speak us, resurrect us with a a major, mini deliverance, a major, mini resurrection. Lord, we desperately need this, Uh, we continuously need this. In fact, this is the Christian life, and so we're not asking anything radical. We're asking for normal Christianity. Grant a mini-resurrection from the dead, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what makes a great leader? What makes a great leader? John the Baptist, uh, this is what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Among those born of women, there has never risen one greater So John the Baptist was a great man. The greatest, according to Jesus. So what made him so great? In John 1, we get a little more personal history about him. If we were to dive into that world just a little bit, it would be really quite interesting because John the Baptist became a rock star. I mean, everyone was tweeting, everybody was YouTubing, everybody was following him. His account was blowing up. Facebook, Instagram, he was a major influencer in the world. In fact, it said that all of Jerusalem was going out to listen to him. All of Jerusalem was hearing him. All of Jerusalem went out to him. Now, if you were a cultural anthropologist or a sociologist or someone that studied trends, you'd be very, very intrigued about this, just on that kind of level, because he is a very socially awkward individual. He ate grasshoppers. He dressed like an Old Testament prophet from way back when. So his clothes, everything, I mean, it wasn't like people were starting to do this stuff. It was more like, who is this guy? And of course, because this was the religious world at the time, the religious world was blowing up. All the religious leaders were blowing up. Everybody wanted to know who this guy was. And so the leaders in Jerusalem sent a group of spiritual spies, maybe. I don't know who they were, but they sent them out to Bethany, which is just outside Jerusalem, to watch him, to check on him, to check him out. What's he up to? And so they followed him and they listened to him and they listened to his messages and they were watching what was happening. They witnessed right before their eyes and they were absolutely stunned and they said they knew they were in the presence of a great man. Who are you? They asked. What John the Baptist says next is the secret to greatness. I am not the Christ. I am not the Savior. Great women and great men say these words. Great women and great men believe these words deep in their bones. I am Zach S. Wine wrote a book called Sensing Jesus, Life and Ministry as a Human Being. Uh, his life crashed as a pastor, so he is qualified to speak about such topics. He tells of a conversation he had with a pastor friend of his, and in the conversation, the pastor friend says, I constantly feel that I'm out of my depth. And Zach says, me too. And they had one of these, their eyes got wide, they stared at each other like, did we just have this honest moment of confessing reality? And then all of a sudden, all these questions and all these thoughts and all these anxieties of ministry started pouring out of them. And they started saying, Why do we think this is a bad thing that this is the case? They said, Why do we lament the fact that we don't know everything, cannot be everything, cannot do everything, and then that cannot do everything with excellence? Why do we lament that we cannot meet everyone's needs and their standards and their preferences and their expectations? Why do we speak of things? Like being out of our depth with such sadness, with such heavy sighing, as if failing is something we're supposed to attain or we're not supposed to attain. Zach said, it feels as if we're supposed to repent for having limits in ourselves. And his friend said, yeah, I know. Now, who taught us this? Where where did this expectation of greatness come from? They came to the conclusion that they were to pray to God. If they had a prayer like this to God that said something like this, Oh, Father, I constantly feel that I'm out of my depth. They said that God would gently answer, And why is that a problem? So Colin, myself, Redeemer leaders, men, women, whether you're an elder, deacon, leader in the church, Redeemer, church leaders, generally, churches all over, generally. We are not the Savior. We are always out of our depth. And this is greatness. Unbelievable, phenomenal, life giving, setting free, powerful, bold, loving greatness. Luther said we must be weak, and leaders are willing to be. What makes a great leader? It starts with I am not the Savior. These are the second greatest words ever announced. I can imagine when, when John the Baptist said that, it is like the first human being in the history of the world finally said something true. I imagine the crickets stopped. I imagine the angels went, what? I imagine every celestial being just went zooming in. I imagine every living creature, the oceans, the winds, everything went, Who says that? Because the heart of sin is I am the Savior. That's the heart of every sin. It is the human fallen condition. Wow, you're so gifted. God really uses you. Wow, that's incredible what's happened in Mark. Incredible what God's doing in Peru. Incredible that all these doors are opening up and that that leaders in other countries are desperate to be trained on how to preach Jesus from the Bible. Imagine that. Wow, that's incredible. And a great leader when they hear that. You know, gosh, you're so gifted. God really uses you. And man, that was incredible what happened over here and how this happened. And it's amazing how you're so, you're so easy to open up your house. It's like, whatever, or or Whatever your gift is, someone comes up and says that to you. And you know what a a great leader says? They know deep down in their heart, they hear, I am not the Savior. And they turn to the person that says it and says, Thank you. Wow, you really blew it. You offended me. Why are you a leader? And a great leader says... I am not the Savior, deep down in their bones and deep down in their heart. I am not the Savior. Yep, and they say to the person that said that to them, yep, I blew it. Stick around and you're going to see more weakness. What makes a great leader? Well, it starts with, I am not the Savior. My vote for the greatest man, though, the greatest leader who ever lived besides Jesus and besides the Spartan Leonidas would be the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Just had to slip that one in there. All right, the Apostle Paul. Seriously, who's had a greater impact on the world than the Apostle Paul? Can you come up with anybody? Seriously. For 2,000 years plus, who's had a greater impact? I mean, who's had a more cataclysmic, cosmic, epic, apocalyptic transformational, eternal impact than the Apostle Paul over the past 2,000 years. I mean, crickets, there's nobody. I mean, seriously, we're here today because of the Apostle Paul. If you are in a Gentile church, meaning a non-Jewish church, which we are in a non-Jewish church, if you are in a non-Jewish church, if if any non-Jewish church has existed, its ultimate origins goes back to the ultimate church planner, which is the ultimate church planner, to non-Jewish churches, which is the Apostle Paul. 99.9% of all churches that are not Jewish come from Paul, ultimately. Paul's written three-quarters in the New Testament. <laughs> three-quarters in the New Testament. What's he doing in the New Testament? His writings are looking at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, what's contained in the Gospels, and he explicates. He displays, he expounds all the wonders of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. He comes in and he interprets the message for us. He sees the events and he says, this is what it means. And all of its implications for you individually, for your relationships, for the way you handle money, for the way you deal with romance, for the way you handle conflict, for the way you wrestle with suffering, for the way cultural crises be handled. Jesus and his whole comprehensive salvation applies to that and applies to this and that's what he does in three quarters of the New Testament. And three quarters of the New Testament where God speaks people back to life again. Three quarters of the New Testament where Jesus' personal active presence is released into your life and your relationships, into your culture, into your world, into your communities. Three quarters of the New Testament where Jesus shows up for you and me and for our relationships and for this world and produces change on the spot when it happens. What made him so great? Well, you know, like uh, John the Baptist, we had to infer what made him great, right? Well, the Apostle Paul, just like he is, he's so blunt, he's just going to tell you what made him great. And so he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he just tells you, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You want to know why I'm great? That's why I'm great. And he goes on, just in case you missed that greatness, here's why I'm great in Galatians six fourteen. But far be it for me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in these two verses, lays out the secret of his greatness, the secret of his spiritual life, how he so powerfully connects with God. The secret of his relational life, how he so powerfully connects with other people. The secret of his mission and his ministry, how he so powerfully connects to God's purposes in the world. He just lays it out to us. We don't have enough time to look at both of them, so we're going to look at one of them. Look at 1 Corinthians 2. Look look what he says again. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, This is phenomenal, y'all. He decided. Paul decided. Paul decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He could have decided something else. Well, what could he have decided? He could have decided to build his life, his relationships, and his mission around what? Listen, I'm tired of getting in trouble these past eight months, so I want you to fill in the blanks now. What could he? What, what, what could the church have decided to build its life, its relationships, and its mission around today? What are some of the things we could have decided to do, or we do decide to do? Perhaps it's good advice. Perhaps it's progressive politics. Or conservative politics. Perhaps it's social justice. According to whatever people say it is. Just to get out of the uncomfortableness we're all feeling right now, let's just pick something like, perhaps it's medieval mysticism. <laughs> there is a little bit of that. It's, these spiritual disciplines come from medieval mysticism and they're making a comeback today in seminaries. What, what do church leaders and church members and churches and pastors decide to know? Decide to know about mission. Decide to know about connecting with people. Decide to know about how to connect with God. Decide to know what is greatness and what the church is all about. What what do we decide to know? Notice Paul is not saying something too. I think it's really interesting. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. And notice he doesn't stop there. The, the, the text doesn't end there. He keeps going. And him crucified. Now this is phenomenal because, in other words, Paul is not building his life relationships and ministry around Jesus, like the God-man, like this incredible messenger from God that's just leading a new movement of people, a resurging renaissance of people finally seeking God or people finally feeling more closely connected with God. He's not leading that kind of wonder worker new God movement. He's not Jesus, the moral teacher. In other words, he's coming along and he's a better Moses. So he's saying, listen, Moses gave his 10, but I'm going to give you like over 500. Moses said, don't murder. I'm going to say, listen, don't hate. Moses said, don't commit adultery. And I'm going to say, that look you just gave that girl. It doesn't say, Jesus a great example either, does it? It doesn't say, finally, we finally have an inspirational example, a role model that we can look up to, someone who can tell us all the time, you know, you can be anything you want to be, and you can, you can do anything you want to do like me. You just need to believe. So we're not given that kind of a Jesus. We're, Paul's very specific here. He's saying, I'm building my life, I'm building my relationships, I'm building my mission around Jesus Christ the crucified. Jesus Christ, the Savior. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Jesus Christ, the Rescuer. Jesus Christ, who's actually God, becoming a human being and taking your place and living a life that we don't live. Because we're all so self-absorbed and we're all so busy trying to be our own savior. And he knew it and so he takes all the wreckage of that. All the darkness of that. And he lives a life that is not like that. And then he takes it and becomes as God himself. All of that on himself and gets crucified. God kills himself. And this is so cataclysmic and comprehensive and comprehensive that it actually permeates and hits every area of life and every late relationship and actually dispels a new reality into all of us and creates a whole new realm of existence. Paul says, I build my life around that. I decide that. Why is it such a big deal for leaders to build their lives and relationships and mission around Jesus as Savior? Not role model, not example, not better Moses, not new God dude. Why? I just want you to listen to some of the things that are going on in the Corinthian church. These are the people he's writing to. So this is a normal, ordinary church. And you're going to freak out. But as a pastor, I don't freak out anymore. Getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. I guess they don't use the little cups like we do. (laughs) Sleeping around with multiple partners in the church. Cold marriages. Angry, distant, disconnected uh, marriages. Poor parenting. So on one side you had moralistic parenting, and on the other side you had do-whatever-you-want parenting. You have wrecked friendships and wrecked relationships. Church relationships breaking up all over the place so much so they're filing lawsuits against each other you laugh mishandling of careers mishandling of money mishandling of sex mishandling your your spiritual gifts worship wars oh I'm so glad we don't do this anymore worship wars over get it what's being done in the service and over what's not being done in the service Power plays among church leaders and significant influential people in the church. Power plays of people with differing visions, differing missions, differing agendas, differing desires, differing preferences. (laughs) So there was no unifying mission or vision, and there was no bending to one another in their preferences and their desires. Everything was elevated to like, this is Christianity. This is fear and reverence of God. And so what happened is you had gossip and slander and personal hatreds and divisions and disunity in the church. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. That's interesting, but here's where it gets really interesting. Paul looks at all those struggles, all those personal, interpersonal, corporate messes and needs, and he gives them Jesus as Savior. In other words, Jesus is saying to you and to me, saying, Jesus as Savior meets all the multi-level messes in your life, all the multi-level needs in your life. Jesus as Savior meets all the multi-level messes and needs in your relationships. Jesus as Savior meets and addresses all the multi-level messes and needs as a corporate church body. Jesus, the Savior, connects us to God, connects us to one another, connects us to mission. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul knows that the Corinthians' deepest problem knows that our deepest problem, the church's deepest problem, is not getting drunk, sleeping around, poor parenting, bad marriages, wrecked friendships and community, power plays, gossip, slander, personal hatreds in the church. Paul knows that our deepest problem, the church's deepest problem, universally speaking, our relationship's deepest problem, is unbelief. In other words, Jesus is not clear to our minds, real to our hearts in this area in our parenting, as a husband, as a wife, in our friendships, and how to deal with conflict, and how to deal with sin, and how to deal with selfishness, and how to deal, be a leader. It's Jesus and his salvation going to this area of life and that area of life. In other words, we're all an unreached area. And the gospel's not just the ABC to get you into the Christian life. The gospel's the A through Z. It's gonna go to every area of our life. Jesus, is Savior, is going to go to every area of your life, and as it does so, you find healing, or what the Bible would call sanctification, theologically speaking. This is the Christian life. This is not some radical thing. It's not just something you get when you come in and then forget it once you get in. This is A to Z Christian life, real Christianity. So, what makes a great leader? It starts with, I am not the Savior, and ends with, but he is. And so John the Baptist, this is why he says, he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase so I must decrease. So let's decrease. Let's decrease his husbands. Let's decrease his wives. Let's decrease his parents. Let's decrease his children. Let's decrease in our jobs. Let's decrease as a church community. Let's decrease in our friendships. Let's decrease in a culture that's on fire. Let's decrease and become great. And become great. Great. We are not the Savior But Jesus is, this is greatness. Amen. Let me pray for us.